Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you there uh, in your homes this morning. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to add my word of greeting to all mothers today. Um, If we have one thing in common, it's that we all have a mother. And so we can all express gratitude to God for uh, the way he's ministered to us in and through her life. Maybe you didn't get on well with your mother. Whenever I hear that, I think of Augustine's words from the fourth century who said, uh, if God is our father, then the church is our mother. And so we can all give thanks for the church who has nurtured us and continues to nurture us now and down through the years. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're beginning in verse 12 this morning. We're going to pick up where Eric left off last week and we'll read until the end of the chapter. So read along with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret by implication? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Amen. Thus far, God's word. A summer staple from my youth was a backpacking trip that in the early years was uh, comprised of my dad and my brother and me. But as we got older, it began to include uh, other family members like my uncle and then friends from church and work. 
One of my favorite parts of that trip each summer was that bit right after dinner and before bed when we all gathered around the fire and began to swap stories. And I especially enjoyed listening to the stories that my dad, my uncle, and their contemporaries would share about uh, their time in the U.S. Army. Uh, I was impressed with a couple of things about those stories. On the one hand, how similar they were, because they all had to do with uh, 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 marching and formation, living in barracks, firing a gun. But on the other hand, how dissimilar they were, because after basic training, each man went on and performed a different role. So, for instance, uh, my dad and my uncle both took their basic training up at Fort Ord in Monterey, and they were both schooled in how to fire an M1 rifle. Now, my uncle achieved sharpshooter status, for which he was awarded a three-day pass and a trip to a foreign battlefield. Well, my dad, due to a medical condition, um, lost most of the hearing in one of his ears, for which he uh, was given a pass to Walter Reed Army Hospital and a trip to Cook School. Both men were in the same army, but each one had an entirely different role. My uncle's role was glorious, even exotic, while my dad's was inglorious and mundane. Both roles were important. Uh, my uncle marched off to a foreign field. But as Napoleon Bonaparte famously put it, an army marches on its stomach, thereby highlighting the crucial importance of my dad's job to make those like my uncle uh, well-nourished and well-fed, strong for the day of battle. One army, united in purpose, diverse in roles. If you've been watching the 10-part uh, series on uh, basketball superstar Michael Jordan, then you've seen this worked out in a different setting. You know, there, there's two parts to Jordan's history. There's uh, that part where the Chicago Bulls equal Michael Jordan. Uh, Jordan did everyone's job, and I might add quite well, but the Bulls never won a championship. Then there's that second period of his career where the Chicago Bulls equal team, where, where MJ did his job and relied on others to do their job. So uh, MJ would put up 50 uh, in a night, Dennis Rodman would pull down 20 rebounds, and as a result, the Chicago Bulls went on to win six NBA championships. One team, united in purpose, diverse in roles, which was Paul's aim for the church at Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, that you be united. That's chapter 1, verse 10. United in Christ. United for the sake of his gospel. United for the glory of God. We see those threads woven in and throughout this book while being diverse in roles. So in chapter 3, we read about the diverse roles among those who were establishing and those who were growing the church. Paul laid a foundation at Corinth, but someone else is building on it. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul planted, Apollos watered. 
But in each and every case, God gave the growth. Verse number six. In chapter seven, we read about the diverse roles in the home, each of which is described as one's own gift from God. In chapter 11, we learned about the diverse roles in the church, each of which is defined as being from God. And today, in chapter 12, again, we're going to pick up where Eric left off last week regarding diverse roles involving gifts and service and activities and the fact that it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So as we've already seen in this letter, a vital church, a, a dynamic church, a healthy church is, as in the words expressed in uh, value number eight of our uh, grace values, uh, page 15 in the, the membership documents, a vital church is one that's characterized by a diverse unity. In fact, that's our main point for this morning. If you leave your living room today having heard nothing else, remember diverse unity. A church diverse, or rather united in purpose, but diverse in roles. Like a, like a garden bouquet presented as, as a united bunch, but comprised of, of diverse flowers, diverse in color and size and aroma. So here's what we'll see this morning as we consider this matter of diverse unity and its importance. In verses 12 and 13, we'll see a picture of diverse unity. In verses 14 through 27, we'll look at diverse unity in principle. And then in verses 28 through 31, we'll examine uh, diverse unity in practice. So that's the way forward this morning. Here's how Paul leads up to it, though. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, the Corinthians have asked about spiritual things. And so, beginning in verse 4, the apostle identifies a variety of spiritual things, including spiritual gifts, you see that in verse 4, spiritual service in verse 5, and then spiritual activities in verse 6. And then in, in verse number 7, he begins to bear down on spiritual gifts, which he describes as the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there's the unity. And then down in verse number 11, empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There's the diversity. Which brings us to our first point. The church is a picture of diverse unity. Now, already in chapter 3, Paul has pictured the church uh, as a building and uh, then as a field. Here in chapter 12, he pictures it as a body, uh, one body. You'll notice that there at the uh, beginning and the end of verse number 12. Comprised of many members. You see that two times over right in the middle of verse number 12. Now, you would think that Paul would write, for just as the body, so it is with the church. But instead, he writes, for just as the body, so it is with Christ. See, God's people are not unified by way of an organization. We're unified by way of an organism, 
a living being. And that's why Paul goes on to emphatically write in verse number 13 that we are unified by one spirit. And notice this, who surrounds us from without since in him we were all baptized and who fills us from within since we were made to drink of him. All around and all within. That image uh, reminds me of a whale. (laughs) Why a whale, uh, you ask? Well, because a whale is completely surrounded by the water through which it travels and is nourished by that same water as it takes in great drafts of it and assimilates the plankton into its, its body. Now, as as you look at this picture in verses 12 and 13, I want you to notice three things. First, the Spirit uh, surrounds and fills one, not because he or she has been baptized into water, but because they've been baptized into Christ, baptized into his Spirit, baptized into his body. Consider the words of John the Baptist who said, I have baptized you with water, but he, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark 1.8. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in uh, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, one baptism. Which, which baptism do you think Paul writes of? John's baptism of water or Jesus' baptism of the Spirit? I believe it's the latter, the baptism of the Spirit. Jesus alluded to this uh, image of of relational immersion um, uh, in a verse with which you are very much acquainted, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever literally believes into him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When you believe in God through Christ, you believe into him fully, uh, believing into, immersing yourself into God's son. So when a person comes to faith, he believes into God's son and is thereby surrounded and filled by God's spirit who includes him in a united and diverse body of others who have done the same. This is why each member of Christ's body can say, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139.7. So the body of Christ is one that is uh, dynamic. It's living, it's active, it's growing. Again, it's not a static organization to which we belong, but rather a living organism. Second, Notice that the body of Christ is comprised of many members from many races. Uh, The New Testament way of saying that is that it's comprised of Jews and Greeks. And what's especially beautiful is that racial diversity in Christ's body isn't checked in at the door. It's not abandoned, but it's rather celebrated. Because our, our diversity is secondary to our unity which we all enjoy as members of a new race, the Christian race. What do I mean by that? 
We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is supremely helpful. And uh, I encourage you to read this with uh, pencil in hand if you're working from a paper Bible. Stylus in hand if you're not. Ephesians 2, beginning in 13. But now in Christ Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, members of all races, have been brought near to one another by the blood of Christ. How? For he himself, he himself, not some charter or declaration or, or what, what have you. He, him, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between the races that he might, one, create in himself, not a club, not a committee, not a congress, but create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and my two reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I, I love that image. Killing the hostility. We're all acquainted with racial hostility. Uh, most recently and graphically, on display in Georgia. A hostility that is deep-seated, long-standing, wide-reaching, but hostility that has suffered even greater hostility against itself in the death of Christ and was replaced by the unity of his spirit. I was thinking about this this morning. It's like, like a monster movie. You know how monsters come in and they wreak havoc on a community and the people within it, and then something greater than that monster comes in and kills it, and everybody rejoices. That's exactly what's happened in Christ and the hostility that is, is extant between the races. It's been killed, and unity has been given in its place. Brothers and sisters, the only... Um, lasting solution to racial hostility is the gospel. That's it. That's it. And we need to be reminded of that fact. By virtue of my position in my last place of work, I was a perennial member of the Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day Committee. And every year I would have to remind my fellow committee members, friends, um, as a Christian university, if our commemoration of this man looks anything like what they do uh, at the county building or anything like they do down at the state university, then shame on us. Because we should not only be bringing attention to the problem, but we should be bringing attention to the answer, which is the gospel. So even at a Christian university, uh, there needs to be a reminder of that, and no doubt at grace as well. Gospel is the answer to racial hostility and the thing that brings us together and unites us. Third, notice that the body of Christ is comprised of many members from many classes, uh, slave, 
free, you see there. Uh, the early Quakers tried to combat class division in the church by speaking in the same fashion. Uh, back then, you could tell from what class a person came by, by the words that they used and their intonation. Uh, Quakers spoke the same. They called it plain speak. They dressed in the same fashion. So when you look at the guy in the Quaker Oats box, they all dressed like that. And they lived in the same fashion. They were all very understated. And that's one of the things I've especially enjoyed about being a part of the Grace family. We have people here from a variety of living situations, a broad spectrum. Uh, the difference between it, which is not readily apparent because of our focus on Christ, which allows us to enjoy deep and rich fellowship together. What a blessing. So that's a picture of diverse unity body that's surrounded and filled by the Spirit of Christ. There, there's the unity. And a body that's comprised of many members from different backgrounds, including those of race and class. There's the diversity. So let's now take a look at the composition of this picture, beginning with diverse unity in principle. This is the biggest section, goes from verse 14 to verse 27, but it can be succinctly split up into two parts. Uh, the principle that every member is important, we see that beginning in verse 14 down to verse 19, and then the principle that no member is too important, we see that beginning in verse 20 down to verse 27. There's also this underlying fact that this is God's way of facilitating diversity which is embedded in both of these sections. So we'll begin with the principle that every member is important. And this is especially for those of you this morning who think, you know, I'm a very little importance in the big scheme of things, or even I'm of no importance. Because the fact of the matter is God's word allows for none of that kind of thinking. He, he doesn't come along and coddle that sort of person. He comes along and challenges that sort of person. Because by saying I'm of little or no importance, you're not lightening the load, you're actually increasing the load. <laughs> you're, you're, you're creating dead weight. In fact, in God's economy of body life, to mix my metaphors here, it's all hands on deck. Look again at verses 15 and 16. If the foot should say, eh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, eh, because I'm not an eye, I don't really belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, I've served in at least three different churches that number over a thousand people, and in each one of those bodies, there have been two perennial problems. Problem number one, members who were overworked, children's workers, youth leaders, committee members. And of course, the answer to that, to that problem was to involve more people in the work, which led to problem number two, members who won't work. Now, they're not obstinate about it. They're just unbiblically self-deprecating. Oh, there's so many gifted uh, workers in this church. You don't really need me. 
oh, the, the leadership bench in this church is so deep, you don't really need me. Uh, you, you can do better than what I have to offer. And the fact of the matter is you won't have any trouble filling this job. Which leads to problem number one. Members who are overworked. Because if the whole doesn't share in the work, then a few become overworked. So the first principle of diversity, or rather diverse unity, is every member is important. You are needed. You have something to offer. Second principle, no member is too important. The, the principle is illustrated there in verses 21 and 22. Take a look at it. Uh, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. <laughs> or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. And further accentuated in verses 22 through 24, where Paul writes, every part of the body is indispensable. No one can go it alone. Christianity is a team sport. Every part of the body is honorable. In the world of fantasy football, and some of you compete in fantasy football, a team is entirely comprised of high profile and what we would think of as important players. You know, the ones who uh, throw the ball and run the ball and catch the ball and kick the ball. But in the world of reality football, uh, the NFL, what we watch when we turn the TV on uh, Sunday afternoons, a team is not only comprised of the high-profile players, throwing, running, catching, kicking, but low-profile players as well. The ones we can tend to think of as unimportant, who snap and hold and block, and punt. Now here's the thing. The high-profile players understand that without the low-profile players, they'd be in traction at some rehab facility out in Phoenix all year long. And so high-profile players, um, uh, it's not unusual for them to give uh, grateful gifts to the low-profile players. So, for instance, in 2019, high-profile uh, Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson gave each one of his offensive linemen a Rolex, a watch, worth $3,500 each. Uh, that same year, Russell Wilson, quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, gave each one of his offensive linemen $12,000 in Amazon stock. $12,000 each. That's why two years ago, Rams quarterback uh, Jared Goff teamed up with running back Todd Gurley, and they gave each one of the offensive linemen a Polaris Ranger, which is an ATV worth over $13,000 apiece. So in the NFL, the high-profile players know and understand that without the, le the less important low-profile players, there's no team. In fact, they may not even be alive. And in the church, the high-profile members should know that without the low-profile members, there's no body. There's no church. 
No member is too important, and no one member is unimportant. So I, I got to ask you, I got to ask myself, who are the low profile, easily overlooked, but nonetheless important members among the Grace family worthy of your thanks and honor? The first person that always comes to mind is the one who's making coffee at 6 a.m that we can enjoy before and after service. Then there's the one who uh, quietly rocks your child in the wing to the left of me so that you can enjoy uninterrupted corporate worship. And then there are those who, who receive and sort uh, food deliveries Monday through Thursday in the room to the right of me so that it can be distributed to the community at Food Bank on Friday. How about the ones who are in the office, uh, laboring anonymously, receiving, uh, uh, depositing, dispersing your faithful giving strategically here at church, into the community and around the world? How about the ones who faithfully sign up for food trains to care for families that they don't even know? Or the ones halfway around the world who labor for the sake of the gospel uh, on our behalf in a language that none of us will ever be able to understand? Or how about the one whom you know that quietly carries on a ministry of prayer? Or who parks at the backside of the parking lot so that you can park up close? Or who always ushers in your section every Sunday morning and you just, just reflexively receive a bulletin from them without ever really making eye contact? Now, interestingly, Paul does not advocate that the high profiler should be made low, nor does he advocate that the low profiler should be made high, that we sacrifice diverse unity for some kind of, of monochrome uniformity. Now, rather, the apostle does advocate that high-profile members should show respect and honor to every member of the body, even those performing low-profile, but necessary tasks. So the first principle of diverse unity, every member is important. Second principle of diverse unity, no member is too important. And then there's this underlying reality that um, this is God's way of facilitating diverse unity. Uh, concerning the fact that Every member of the body is important. Take a look at verse 18 in that first section. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, including you, as he chose. And concerning the fact that no member of the body is too important, see the end of verse 24. But as it is, God has so composed the body. So the composition, the, the arrangement of the body are God's idea toward this end. Take a look at verse 25, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ, unified and individually members of it diversified. And with that, Paul moves from diverse unity in principle to diverse unity in practice. 
wherein we see that this, this body composed and arranged by God is further comprised of roles or manifestations of the Spirit, as it's put back in verse number 7, appointed, also appointed by God. We see that there in verse 28. So to begin, there are the numbered appointments, apostles, prophets, teachers. Now, an apostle was someone who was with Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his ascension. So while there are no more apostles in the church today, uh, the church that was established on the word and witness of the apostles remains established according to that word and witness as revealed in the scriptures. So in this way, the apostles still exercise great sway in our midst. That's the importance of adhering to the apostolic deposit, the apostolic witness. Prophets are ones who encourage those in the church. Uh, we'll look at that when we get to chapter 14, verse 3 in particular. In fact, later in the chapter, we'll see that prophets also uh, are used in converting those from outside the church. But what's especially helpful about understanding the role of New Testament prophet is that uh, one does not speak unilaterally as a New Testament prophet as uh, an Old Testament prophet did in former days. Rather, a New Testament prophet speaks only after his prophecy has been weighed by a plurality of prophets who take that subjective word and weigh it against the objective word of Scripture and then determine whether it's suited to be shared. Uh, three weeks from now, Eric will tease all that out for us when he's here with us again. And then there are teachers. And teachers are ones who teach. The church was founded on the apostles' teaching. So today, teachers build up the church by reading and explaining and applying the apostles' teaching. That's, that's what we're doing right now. In fact, as we learned in chapter 9, uh, the role of teacher is such a crucial one in the church that teachers are expected to be paid for their work. Now, why does Paul number these first three appointments? Because among the Corinthians, these were arguably the roles of least importance. These were the roles of least importance. When we get in, or uh, if you were to go on and read 2 Corinthians, you would find Paul having to defend the importance of apostleship. A couple of chapters from now, Paul will write that the gift of prophecy is actually one to be desired, and that the gift of teaching is what provides meaning to the gift of tongues. And speaking of tongues, Paul numbers the first three appointments because the Corinthians were especially drawn to the unnumbered gifts, the high-profile gifts there in the second half of verse 28. Most of all tongues, since they were viewed as the, the uh, clearest or even the only evidence of the Spirit's presence in one's life. So while scholars agree that the unnumbered gifts are of equal importance, they also agree that it's significant to note that tongues is listed last. Not because it's of least importance, but because it created many of the problems there 
at Corinth, problems such as disorderly worship and barriers in communication and, and individual pride. Kenny's going to speak to those matters in a couple of weeks. So, as we come to a close this morning, what are we to make of all of this, this picture of, of diverse unity, this uh, diverse unity in principle, diverse unity in practice? Well, the answer isn't do. It isn't to go out and do something to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty and to become active. No, rather, the answer is it, it comes from within. It, it's to desire. Chapter 14, verse 1, earnestly desire all the spiritual gifts. The end of our chapter here, 1231, earnestly desire the higher gifts. If grace is going to be a church that not only values but enjoys diverse unity, then we need to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the higher ones. And God will give them. He will, in His time, to whom He will and for His purposes in the moment. Now, remember, these gifts are not to be gotten. They're, they're given. They're not for self they're for service. They're not for one. They're for everyone. And yet, there's, there's still one thing missing. One thing missing, without which the gifts, as we'll see next week, actually become annoying and, and worthless. And diverse unity is an empty aspiration rather than a vibrant realization. And that's why Paul ends chapter 12 with these words. He says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. And that way is the key to this letter. Healing divisions among those inside the church. I mean, we saw that as early as chapter 1, verse 10. And yet revealing to those outside the church that we are, in fact, disciples of Christ. Jackson's going to tell us about that one missing thing next Sunday morning. So for now, let's earnestly desire all the spiritual gifts, and especially the higher ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would truly nurture us with a desire for all the spiritual gifts that we might enjoy diverse unity in principle and in practice for your glory in this community and beyond, now and until you return. We pray in Jesus' name.